Hubhopper Originals. To start your podcast for free, log on to studio.hubhopper.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to another thought-provoking episode of Indian Jeans. Today we are honored to have a truly distinguished guest, a scholar whose groundbreaking research has challenged our understanding of ancient civilizations and their place in history. Personally for me this is a very special episode as well as I have been following his work for probably the last 25 to 30 years. I've read every single book that he has put out and he has helped me in my journey of curious inquiry. And so for me it's absolutely amazing that I get this opportunity to speak to him. And I ask you to join me as we explore the fascinating world of Dr. Robert Shock. Dr. Shock is no stranger to the academic world, having been a full-time faculty member at the College of General Studies at Boston University since 1984. He earned his PhD in geology and geophysics at Yale University in 1983, and his passion for knowledge led him to hold degrees in anthropology and geology from George Washington University. But it was in the early 1990s that Dr. Shock truly stunned the world with his revolutionary research on the Great Sphinx of Egypt. His findings recast the date of the majestic monument to a period thousands of years earlier than previously believed. By demonstrating that the Sphinx had been heavily eroded by water despite the arid climate of the location, he revealed that mankind's history is far greater and older than we have ever imagined. This discovery opened the door to new possibilities in understanding ancient civilizations. His work since focused on cataclysmic events that marked the end of the Earth's last ice age around 9700 BCE and the subsequent decline of advanced civilizations where in his book Forgotten Civilization New Discoveries on the solar induced dark age published in 2021 he presents compelling evidence of the enormous solar outburst as the cause behind these historical events so ladies and gentlemen get ready to embark on a journey through time and knowledge as we delve deep into the past and explore the fascinating research of Dr Robert Shock and i ask you to join me in welcoming him to indian genes where intellectual curiosity knows no bounds so dr robert shock from everyone here at indian genes and in india it's an absolute pleasure and personally for me it is an honor to be speaking to you uh, the reason i say honor is because it was your books your insights and the way you thought probably 25 30 years ago when nobody else was thinking or even if people were thinking they were not putting it out but i think over these 25 years it has shown us that when you're sure about something and you're ready to challenge what else is being put out there ultimately if it's the truth then that's what it is that comes out and i think with your work it's exactly what has happened so thank you very much again from all of us here in india for accepting to speak to us Well thank you thank you very much and you're being very kind I think by saying 25 years because it actually goes back to 1990 so it's been over 30 years now uh that I've been pursuing this and 
I think it's worth it. So thank you very much. Right. And just for people who are tuning in now and now that your work has become so popular and other people have picked up where where you had started and where you are continually going, I think it would be interesting if you would just want to tell us and for me, I just wanted to understand, how did this all start for you? Okay, so let's um, define the path that we're talking about. And the path that we're talking about, what I'm referring to when I say 30 years, is my professional work, my professional my professional research on the origins of civilization, which is really what it comes down to now. And this began with my work on the Great Sphinx of Egypt. So 30 years, 33 years, 1990, what I'm referring to at that point is my first trip to Egypt in 1990, the summer of 1990. And I went to Egypt at the invitation of the late John Anthony West. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2018, but he was a Egyptologist in the sense of what he called well, he referred to himself as an independent Egyptologist. He was essentially self-taught, but incredibly knowledgeable. And he also was, uh, I'll call it a follower of the late Schwaller de Lubitsch, R.A. Schwaller de Lubitsch, who passed away, I believe it was 1961, so long before I was involved in such things. Schwaller de Lubitsch, had suggested back in the 30s and 1940s and 1950s that Egypt in many ways was much more sophisticated scientifically, mathematically than most people gave Egypt credit for. So that was one aspect to it. But the other aspect was that Schwaller had suggested that the Sphinx, the Great Sphinx, was eroded by, as he put it loosely, uh, uh, water, that there was water damage on the Great Sphinx. He thought, and West thought it was probably some kind of flooding, but at any rate, to see water damage rather than erosion by wind and sand, as you expect in a Sahara condition, Sahara a hyper-arid condition of the Sahara Desert because the Sphinx sits on the edge of the Sahara Desert, that would indicate there may be something amiss when it comes to the age of the Sphinx. So that's how I first got into it in a professional sense in 1990. But the truth is, even before I went to Egypt in 1990, even before I met John Anthony West in the late 1980s, we first met in the late 1980s, I had been interested in ancient civilizations. I'd been interested in art history, especially antiquity, the uh, history of art in antiquity and the history, political history in antiquity. That actually goes back to my early childhood, you know, maybe six or eight, when I was six or eight or so. I remember seeing uh uh, an ex exhibition of some of the uh, artifacts from Tutankhamun that had been brought to Washington, D.C., where I was living at the time. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. My grandmother, who was a theosophist, if people know what theosophy is, 
uh, was very interested in ancient civilizations, ancient cultures. She had an incredible library that I enjoyed reading, even in my preteen years. I uh, went to college, undergraduate, got degrees in anthropology with a specialization in archaeology and geology, uh, pursued art history, did lots of diverse things, never losing an interest in ancient civilizations, went on to do my graduate work at Yale University, got a PhD in geology and geophysics, then got a job at Boston University, was tenured there. And it was just after I was tenured that I first went to Egypt to begin really uh, studying things academically or studying ancient civilizations academically. And my basic conclusion going to Egypt in 1990 was that, yes, there's something amiss with the standard chronology of the Great Sphinx. The Great Sphinx traditionally is considered to have been carved de novo from scratch, from the bedrock. You have to, when they carved the body of the Sphinx, they had to cut down into the bedrock. And all of that has traditionally been attributed to the Pharaoh Khafra, also known as the Pharaoh Shephron, about 2500 BC, or I prefer BCE, before the Common Era. And Khafra is also um, the reputed builder of the Second Pyramid. The Sphinx sits due east of the Second Pyramid. So all the Egyptologists felt very certain that the Sphinx goes back only to the time of Khafra, about 2500 BCE or 4500 years ago. I went there in 1990 as a geologist and saw very, very quickly that the weathering and erosion on the body of the Sphinx and the walls of what are known, what is known as the Sphinx enclosure is actually weathering that is very typical of rain, of precipitation. You have what I call a rolling, rounded uh, profile, undulating profile from the weathering and erosion. You have deep vertical fissures that you don't get from wind and sand weathering. You have all the hallmarks of precipitation, heavy precipitation, and water runoff. And this is incompatible with the concept that the body of the Sphinx is only 2500 BCE, because we know for the last 5,000 or so years, the eastern edge of the Sahara Desert, where the Giza Plateau with the three major pyramids and the Sphinx sits, we know that this was a hyper-arid situation, the edge of the Sahara Desert. So I came to the conclusion very quickly that the Sphinx, at least the origins of the Sphinx, and I want to stress origins of the Sphinx, go back to an earlier, more remote period. It took a lot more work to figure out how far back it goes to give a more precise date. I did uh, seismic studies around the Sphinx in the early 1990s following the initial trip in 1990. I did seismic studies with a colleague, Dr. Thomas DeBecke, who's a geophysicist since retired. And we uh, looked at subsurface erosional, I'm sorry, subsurface weathering features, technically subsurface weathering features to uh, 
be compatible with the erosional features that we saw on the surface. We also found a chamber under the left paw of the Sphinx, but that's another story that we can talk about later if you like. And the data I compiled, that and other data all corroborated that yes, the core body of the Sphinx goes back to an earlier period. I now put it at about 10,000 BCE. So before the end of the last ice age, the ice age ended at 9,700 BCE. So this was really incredible, incredibly early, did not go over well with a lot of my colleagues in academia who contended that the earliest evidence, the earliest evidence for civilization, that is the origins of civilization, goes back only to about maybe 3,500 or even 4,000 BCE, not something on the order of 10,000 BCE. I do want to point out, because I, it's important observation, the head of the current Sphinx is not the original head. The head is a dynastic recarving of the original head. The head is about 25, maybe 2700 in my estimate BCE. So that is less than 5,000 years ago. The head has been recarved. It's not the original head. Most people, when it's pointed out to them, can see that the head of the Sphinx is actually too small for the current body. And that makes sense because it was originally a larger head, and it weathered and eroded, as did the body. With the body, they put limestone blocks on the body to sort of fill in the erosional features to try to reconstruct it. A lot of this was done during ancient dynastic times, so thousands of years later. What must have been a very weathered and eroded head would have been very difficult to try to reconstruct with blocks of uh, limestone and mortaring them onto the face and to the head. So apparently what they did is they took the weathered head and recarved it. The original head we now have evidence for, and it turns out that the original head most likely was a female lion, a lioness. So originally the Sphinx was not a Sphinx. It was a lioness, which when the head was recarved, it was turned into a Sphinx. That is the body of a lion with the head of a human. So this really got me into looking at early civilization. And the bottom line is that I am now convinced, not just based on my work in Egypt, but other work around the world that I've been pursuing and other finds that have been discovered around the world, that we have evidence for what I call an earlier cycle of civilization, a cycle of civilization that ended in 9700 BCE. It ended then we don't know how far back it goes. I can't tell you what the origins of that civilization might be because we just don't have that data yet, but we have good evidence of it in terms of the Sphinx and related structures in Egypt. Corroborating my work on the Sphinx, I started doing that work in the early 1990s. I was challenged at the time to name any other incredibly sophisticated 
equally advanced cultural site anywhere in the world. I could not at the time. But since then, beginning in the mid-1990s, the site of Gebekli Tepe in Turkey has been excavated and continues to be excavated. And it turns out that Gebekli Tepe in Turkey, it's a different type of site. We can talk about that more. It consists of um, uh, erected pillars, beautifully carved, incredibly sophisticated. But what is key here is that Gebekli Tepe also dates to this early remote period. The um, portions of Gebekli Tepe, I have no doubt based on the evidence, including radiocarbon dates, uh, based on the stratigraphy and other data that we can put together, that Gebekli Tepe also goes back to about 10,000 BCE, roughly, before the end of the last ice age. And these, the evidence for early civilization, these early people, they essentially disappeared at the end of the last ice age. Uh, there was uh, uh, incredible natural disasters that ended the ice age at 9700 BC. BCE, 9700 BCE, 11,700 years ago. And essentially humanity went into what I refer to as a dark age for about 6,000 years. And it was not the origins of civilization that we have at 5,000 to 6,000 years ago, but the reemergence of civilization about five to 6,000 years ago. So I don't disagree with the um, later dating and the later archaeological evidence for civilization over the last five, 6,000 years, but I have, um, I think, now established based on the evidence, and we continue to develop more evidence, that there was an earlier cycle of civilization with a dark age in between. And just to finish my quick summary of my sort of overview of the work I've been doing for the last 30 years, what caused the last ice age to end? It was a major solar outburst, a major solar outburst from the sun, which devastated the planet, essentially snapped us out of the cold period of the Ice Age. Everyone knows the Ice Age was cold. That's why it's called the Ice Age, especially in the Northern Hemisphere. It was very cold uh, compared to temperatures today. The solar outburst snapped us out of that at 9700 BCE, and we have good evidence for this, physical evidence and cultural evidence, archeological evidence, for it. You can see, in fact, evidence of it right at Gebekli Tepe, also on the Giza Plateau in terms of vitrification, that is rock that was melted and recongealed uh, due to uh, what's known as plasma strikes when you have a major solar outburst. Uh, very, well, electrically charged particles, so basically plasma. Plasma, in a physics sense, is electrically charged particles. They were ejected by the sun, moving at incredible speeds, good percentage of the speed of light. And some of them penetrated down in certain areas to the surface of the earth, would have uh, 
appeared to the people living at that time as if they were huge lightning or thunderbolts. And where they touched down, they would have melted glaciers. If they hit glaciers, they would have evaporated water uh, to an incredible extent. Where they hit a rock, they could melt the surface of the rock and then it would recongeal. That's known as vitrification. In other areas, they set forest fires and um, uh, essentially incinerated everything around. It would have damaged the ozone layer. It uh, caused high radiation levels on the surface of the earth. We have uh, major mammal extinctions, large mammal extinctions at that time. We have people having to seek shelter and caves and underground. So we see all the evidence of this devastation at 9700 BCE. And part of what's happening is this early cycle of civilization is really brought down. It's really um, uh, brought to, to use the cliche, brought to its knees. So we go into a dark age and Katie, my wife, Katie, Catherine Ulysses, but her, she goes by Katie. She and I uh, have the name that we've used, and actually, it's a subtitle of my book, this new edition of my book, Forgotten Civilization. The I wrote a book in 2012, or came out in 2012, talking about the basis of this, or the fundamentals of what I'm describing, and the book was called Forgotten Civilization: The Role of Solar Outbursts in our past and future. 2021, I did a revised edition at the request of the publisher where I included a new chapter, lots of new data corroborating what in some ways was just speculation in the 2012 edition. And the new subtitle for the book is New Discoveries on the Solar-Induced Dark Age. So we refer to it as a solar-induced dark age, which followed the collapse of these early civilizations at 9700 BC. So we have this dark age that was solar-induced, the solar-induced dark age, or for short, the acronym SIDA, S-I-D-A. And that lasted for a good 6,000 or so years from about 9700 BCE to about, let's say, 37,300 BCE when we have civilizations once again arising after a prolonged period of the sun having stabilized, having been uh, fairly regular once again. Although, as I point out in the new edition of Forgotten Civilization, in the last 5, 10, 12 years, a lot of evidence has been developed, which we didn't have even as recently as 2012, that the sun is a much more active star than anyone ever suspected. And even in the last 10,000 to 12,000 years, there have been periods of high activity of the sun. For instance, there's what's known as the Charlemagne event. The Charlemagne event occurred in the late 8th century of the Common Era, it's referred to as the Charlemagne event because the King Charlemagne was around at the time, so it's named after him. And it was a major solar outburst, nothing close to what happened at the end of the last ice age, but much larger than anything we've seen in modern times. And if we had an event even close to the Charlemagne event, it would bring down 
modern civilization, modern technological society as we know it, much less something at the level of the um, events, the solar outburst that happened at the end of the last ice age. So that's uh, maybe a short summary of what I've been doing over the last 30 some years working on ancient civilization, but it really all began professionally for me in 1990 when I first went to Egypt. And I should point out that I went to Egypt thinking that that would be my one and only trip to Egypt. I thought that when John Anthony West suggested to me that the Sphinx could possibly be older than 2500 BC, immediately as a trained academic, as someone ensconced in academia with a PhD from Yale, so I was well indoctrinated in the conventional scenarios, the conventional wisdom, I thought it was an insane concept that a bunch of Egyptologists over the centuries could be so wrong about something so fundamental as the origins of the Sphinx. But I was, um, I had to follow the evidence. I had to look at the evidence for myself. And as a geologist, it became very uh, clear to me that there was something amiss. And so I've been following that evidence ever since and developing it and finding more and more evidence for, again, what I refer to as a earlier cycle of civilization. And interestingly, you mentioned Schwaller, uh, de Lubrick, and I think his book that came out in the 30s was uh, The Temple in Man. And mm-hmm. though, he didn't, though he did speak about water erosion, uh, his book also spoke about uh, other spiritual experiences that, uh, that humans go through or could go through. And I'm not sure whether in the 1930s, it was all about physics and it was about quantum physics and there were these new experiments coming out where the people at that time or the spirit of that age was ready for what he actually said as far as the Sphinx was concerned or maybe that got hidden behind the other uh, the, the, the other comments that he had made. What do you think about it and are people a little bit more ready to accept it now or is it just because scientific proof, proof is now available? Okay, so there's a couple of things going on. Uh, Schwaller definitely brought in spirituality and he used the term uh, sacred science, at least as it's translated into English, interpreted in English, that science and the sacred and what we would call religion, you know, there's this huge dichotomy for some people now between religion and science. And he argued, I think, very cogently, and other people have made the point that that's a modern dichotomy. That's something that really arose maybe with the Enlightenment and in the 19th through 21st century, this sort of distinction between science and religion that was a much more unified matter early on. And actually, you mentioned quantum physics, quantum mechanics, starts to, I think in some ways, some interpretations reunify those different concepts. But the age of the Sphinx is another matter. And Schwaller really did not emphasize the age of the Sphinx. He really mentioned the Sphinx sort of in an almost offhand manner. He didn't pursue it to any great extent. As you mentioned, his real work was 
on what he called the Temple of Man, which is also known as the Luxor Temple, the temple in Luxor in uh, Upper Egypt. So that's really where he was wor working. And he did talk about the civilization, dynastic civilization, going back to an earlier period. To elaborate on that, the and so now I'm talking about my own work and my own analysis interpretation rather than trying to, uh, uh, you know, get, uh, I don't want to misspeak when it comes to Schwaller, should I put it that way? So elaborating on Schwaller, the ancient Egyptians themselves talked about what I would see as an earlier cycle of civilization. They used the term Zeptepe, the first time, the sort of the time of creation, the beginning of time, one could translate it as, as a time when uh, the gods, the so-called gods, and humans were much closer together. The gods were even on earth. Really a beginning, a really a primordial time, a primordial civilization, which I believe in modern terms, is that earlier cycle of civilization that they were acknowledging going back to the end of the last ice age, some 6,000, 7,000 years before dynastic, the beginnings of dynastic Egypt. And this then ties in with something else that uh, John Anthony West liked to talk about a lot. And of course, he was uh, following the path of Schwaller. And that is a concept which many of my academic colleagues do not like to talk about at all. And for a long time, I did not talk about in public. And that is the concept of Atlantis. The very notion of Atlantis is downplayed or dismissed as being any, as being, having any concept of reality. So the notion of Atlantis as a real place or a real time are referring to anything more than effectively a metaphor on the part of Plato. Most academics don't want to consider Atlantis as something real. That's what I'm trying to say. But Schwaller and West did consider it to maybe have a basis, in fact, at some level. And what is interesting is not the whole notion of Atlantis as a geographical region. In fact, John Anthony West and I often talked about this. Neither one of us ever was a hunter for Atlantis, someone looking for the physical location of Atlantis. In fact, I think that's not important. I'm not sure it even is applicable to the broader topic. What I am convinced is that Plato's concept of Atlantis refers to a time period, a early primordial civilization or earlier cycle of civilization, and it sets a temporal framework for that, which is incredibly accurate. So let me elaborate on that a little bit. Plato said that the Atlantean culture, the Atlantean people, the Atlantean civilization was destroyed catastrophically and that this occurred about 9,000 years before Solon, the Athenian, sometimes known as a lawgiver, who 
had gone to Egypt in about 600 or so BCE and had learned the story of Atlantis and that at that time he was told that Atlantis had been decimated by catastrophe about 9,000 years earlier. So 9,000 years earlier than 600 BCE in our calendar would be about 9,600 BCE, which is incredibly close in my assessment to the modern dating of the end of the last ice age based on ice cores, based on sediment cores, based on good physical geological data to 9,700 BCE. Plato was not trying to be accurate down to the year. He was giving a ballpark figure. So I think that within him being within 100 years is incredibly accurate and not coincidental whatsoever. So I think that the Atlantis concept, the uh, story of Atlantis, is more corroboration, fits in with the time frame that I have developed independently. I'm definitely not basing my work on Plato and his dating of Atlantis, but I think it's incredibly interesting. And I think that maybe finally in the 21st century, the broader academic community and the broader public can start to appreciate that, yes, there were incredibly sophisticated people, call them Atlanteans if you want, call them whatever you want, but they go back to a much earlier period, to the end of the last ice age. And it's not just a matter of, well, this is interesting factual material, but so what? Lots of people actually say that to me. Well, that's interesting, but what applicability does it have today? And I would say the applicability it has today is that a sophisticated society, a true civilization, 9,700 BCE was was devastated by natural events, natural catastrophes that were initiated by the sun, by a solar outburst or series of solar outbursts. We today are even more vulnerable to an active sun, and we now have plenty of astrophysical evidence that our sun is ramping up in it, ramping up in its activity. The sun is more active now than it has been for not just thousands of years, but essentially for the last 10, 11,000 years or more. So we are going back into a period of an active sun as we had at the end of the last ice age. We need to learn from the past. We need to learn about what can happen to a civilization for our own benefit. And we today are even more vulnerable because we are a civilization based on uh, electronics, electricity, grid systems, and all kinds of infrastructure that is incredibly vulnerable to solar activity, even relatively minor solar activity. We see that on a regular basis, much less a major solar outburst. It's also interesting, and I think also uh, you did speak about this, I guess, way back in 2012 in your book, Forgotten Civilization, and I just want to get to that book now. You have released an updated version, and within that, there have been certain... Uh, I could call them predictions that have been validated by the scientific community of what you were talking. But when you spoke about timelines, Robert, 
we spoke about the younger dryers and what those catastrophes were or solar flares but i just wanted to understand if you could put this timeline into perspective for us so when you say that this particular extinction event could have been solar flares are you talking about the event that happened because i guess there were two events one would have been about 10900 bc and then there was another event that was maybe like you said 9700 bc so when did these events start as far as we can place them yes that's a very good point so i'd like to elaborate on that and clarify that at the end of the last ice age we have uh, two major events and you just pointed that out and uh we should talk about that there's one at 10900 BCE that's known as the beginning of the younger dryas and then there's one at 9700 BCE which is the end of what's known as the younger dryas the younger dryas is a period of time that lasted for about 1200 years so to give the slightly broader picture the ice age you know had been going on for let's say roughly 100,000 years things were very cold it was primarily a north american phenomena not a north american uh, let me back up a northern hemisphere phenomenon seen in europe and north america and also uh in asia etc but really a northern hemisphere phenomenon although overall temperatures for the planet were considerably cooler compared to background compared to today so about 15000 years ago or so we had the height of the last ice age it was then starting to warm up so it was starting to warm up and things were slowly getting warmer then at 10900 bce all of a sudden temperatures dropped dramatically again so this is what's known as the beginning of the younger dryas 10900 bce some people say 10800 bc but i'll use uh what i consider the best data right now 10900 bce so we had all of a sudden gradual warming then a cooling event at 10900 BCE that's the beginning of the younger dryas the cooling event lasts for about 1200 years till 9700 BC when then we have a sudden warming event which brings us up virtually overnight literally virtually overnight to modern global temperatures and when i say literally virtually overnight back when i was a graduate student people thought that the end of the last ice age and the 9700 bce the end of the younger dryas is also the end of the last ice age when i was a graduate student at yale in the 1980s we thought that the ice age ended very suddenly but we were talking about maybe a couple of centuries because that's very sudden geologically then papers start to come out that maybe it occurred over just a few decades then a paper came out saying it occurred over just a few years 
And the most recent data is that we can literally date the end of the last ice age to within a period of just a couple of weeks. And it's simply that we don't have the resolution to get it down further, but all the evidence is all the evidence is that it could well have literally happened in a day and a night, so to speak as Plato talks about for Atlantis. Now, what would bring about such a sudden change would be solar outbursts. And I do want to say that when we're talking about solar outbursts, we're talking about more than just solar flares. We're talking about what are known as coronal mass ejections, solar flares, solar proton events, uh, high-speed charged particles hitting the atmosphere hitting the magnetosphere, hitting the ionosphere, penetrating down to the surface of the earth, as I described earlier when we were talking. So major devastation. I am 100% convinced that it was a solar event, solar outburst. They ended the last ice age at 9700 BCE. And to the best of my knowledge, no one has proposed a better explanation uh, for the end of the last ice age, in my assessment, based on the data. Now, going back to the beginning of the Younger Dryas, a lot of people have heard theories about comets, and comets at the end of the last ice age are a major comet at the end of the last ice age, or some people say an asteroid or meteorite, but Right now, astrophysically, they sort of blur together. So something happened at 10,900 BCE, and this is where uh, there has been a lot of discussion of a comet hitting the Earth or exploding in the upper atmosphere at 10,900 BC, the beginning of the Younger Dryas. And again, I need to stress that the beginning of the Younger Dryas at 10,900 BCE is very different temporally from the end of the last ice age 1,200 years later. So the comet hypothesis has been proposed for the beginning of the Younger Dryas. And logically, some people would say, well, how do you initiate a cooling event? You have to put aerosols, you have to put dust or debris, something into the atmosphere, that would cause um, a cooling effect, would block out the sun. We have evidence for this independently, separately, 65, 66 million years ago for a huge asteroid hitting the Earth and causing what would have been equivalent to, during the Cold War, people talked about a nuclear winter, but putting all kinds of uh, dust and debris into the atmosphere, causing the dinosaurs to go extinct, etc. But that's 65, 66 million years ago. Game back to the Younger Dryas, 10,900 BCE, a lot of people have suggested it must be a comet that would cause a cooling event. I heartily disagree with that. I've looked at all the evidence. The evidence that has been proposed for a comet Things like nanodiamonds, shocked quartz, um, uh, wildfires, uh, uh, silicious scoria, vitrification. I've looked at all this evidence. Some of it can be dismissed because it's temporally out of place. It's not 10,900 BCE. Some of it is very confused. For instance, people talk about the Carolina Bays having been 
created at that time. No, in fact, many of the bays were created at diverse times, not all at 10,900 BCE, and they're probably not cometary anyway. Uh, there's other ways you can create the bays. Uh, some people jumped on what's known as the Hiawatha Crater in Greenland and thought that was the crater caused by a comet at 10,900 BCE. It turns out, no, it's not. It's now been dated, and it's tens of millions of years old. It's not 10,900 BCE. It's off by literally tens and tens and tens of millions of years. So there's really not, in my assessment, any good evidence for a comet per se. Yes, there's evidence that something happened, something extraterrestrial happened, but all the evidence for a comet that has all the evidence that has been proposed for a comet can also be explained by a solar outburst. So the um, nano diamonds and the wildfires and the shocked quartz, we now know that you can have shocked quartz from even modern atmospheric lightning strikes. And I talk about this in the new edition of Forgotten Civilization. And you're absolutely right when you said that some of what I speculated and hypothesized and predicted in the 2012 edition, we now have evidence that in fact, yes, it was the case. So I feel very vindicated in that sense. So something happened at 10,900 BC. I believe it was a solar event. And I also want to point out that we have evidence, for instance, archaeological record of petroglyphs that literally depict what you would see in the sky during a solar event. They do not depict comets, but they depict the configurations, the plasma, the electrically charged particle configurations you would see in the sky during a solar event. Uh, as an analogy, people know what the northern or southern lights are, uh, things in the sky. You have very distinctive shapes, sort of like the northern lights or the southern lights taking on very distinctive stick figure shapes. And you would see those in the sky during a major solar outburst. And we have archaeological depictions of these petroglyphs. Dr. Anthony Perrot at Los Alamos National Laboratories in New Mexico. He's a professional plasma physicist looking at um, uh, high energy plasma physics. And he has modeled in the laboratory what you would see in the sky during a major solar outburst. And he has matched what he's been able to model and experimentally demonstrate with the archaeological record. So you have data that can be explained by a solar outburst, but not by a comet. You have data that can be explained by either a comet theoretically or a solar outburst, but you don't have data that can only be explained by a comet um, and not a solar outburst. So when you've got ambiguous data, more or less when I say ambiguous, could match either a solar outburst or a comet, but then you have other data that only matches a solar outburst, I think you have to, at this point, with the data we have, accept that it was solar outbursts. Um, definitely for the end of the last ice age at 9700 BC, I think that solar outbursts bracketed 
the younger Dryas. That is, it was a solar outburst. It was a solar outburst in my assessment that initiated the younger Dryas. Now, that is more difficult for many people to understand initially. How could a solar outburst cause the Earth to cool, especially when I'm arguing that a major solar outburst heated up the Earth in 9700 BC? So 1,200 years later, a solar outburst causes the Earth to warm up. Why 1,200 years earlier would it cause the initiation of a cooling spell? And I now have what I am convinced is the answer to that. And this uh, came out of data that was published since the first edition of my book, Forgotten Civilization. And to try to summarize it very briefly, as temperatures were warming at the end of the last ice age, huge glacial lakes developed. As glaciers were melting, huge glacial lakes developed. We've known this for 150 or so years. They're even given names by geologists, these now non-existent lakes, but because there's so much geological evidence for them, They've uh, been named and mapped and well understood. So these huge glacial lakes were forming on the tops of glaciers as Earth slowly warmed up. Then in 10,900 BC, I am convinced all the evidence indicates that a major solar outburst occurred at that time. And the reason the Earth cooled was because the major solar outburst melted ice dams that were holding these huge glacial lakes back. So ice dams were melted, suddenly broke through. And as some of my, some of um, the people who have studied these ice dams in just the past few years have established, there were major outbursts of the dams, major uh, breaks in the dams very, very suddenly at 10,900 BCE. This makes perfect sense in my assessment in terms of a solar outburst. So yes, it was warming. It was melting these ice dams, uh, plasma discharges, literally hitting the ice in some cases would break, broken them, caused all these effects. But ultimately, the northern hemisphere cooled because all of this fresh water, cold, fresh water was dumped into the ocean, especially the Atlantic Ocean. Circulation patterns changed. The um, circulation patterns in the Atlantic, we can now demonstrate, changed. They even reversed or stopped. And this caused a cooling effect. The um, uh, the uh, circulation patterns that we have in the Atlantic are incredibly important for the distribution of heat around the Earth. And if you change those circulation patterns, as happened at 10,900 BC with the breaking of the ice dams and the release of all this fresh water into the um, northern oceans, the Atlantic, the North Atlantic in particular, it would cause a cooling effect. And that's exactly what we see. So we now have an understanding, a mechanism of how solar events, solar outbursts 
can cause a cooling effect at 10,900 BCE. And by 9,700 BCE, these, la these uh, lakes are drained. The cooling has set in. At that point, when we have another major solar outburst at 9,700 BC, it has the reverse effect. It has the warming effect that intuitively most people would expect from a major solar outburst. It also turns out that astrophysically, we're finding more and more evidence that stars like our sun, and our sun is a star, of course, that stars like our sun, go through periods of instability, what I would call disequilibrium, and some astrophysicists use that term. They go through periods of instability or disequilibrium where they then recalibrate, re-equilibrate by having some major solar outbursts. And stars similar to ours it's now been established in some cases go through periods of disequilibrium and recalibration for a couple of thousand years. Then they essentially calm down for maybe on the order of 10,000 years. And then they build up internal stresses. We can sort of think of it that way. And then they start to have to recalibrate. They go through disequilibrium. They go through more solar outbursts. So this may be a pattern that you have a couple of thousand years of instability in the star, then on the order of 10,000 years stability, then uh, you go into a period of instability again. Thomas Gold, who was an astrophysicist at Cornell University, first started talking about these things in the 1960s on a pretty much hypothetical level, although he then found data on the moon to support what he was saying when the Apollo missions came back with their uh, the data they collected. And a lot of people in the 1960s, he said, essentially, you're a brilliant astrophysicist, but here you're wrong because we know the sun is not so unstable. Well, no, we're now finding that, yes, the sun is like any other star in its class, it goes through periods of instability and stability. Thomas Gold, to get back to him, he suggested that there might be major solar outbursts about every 10,000 or so years. The last one, that was just off the top of his head, uh, but to give an order of magnitude. And it turns out that he was pretty much right based on the much more recent astrophysical work. And now what we know based on what we know about our sun and being able to piece things together, that yes, there are major solar outbursts in the 10,900, 9,700 BCE period. It's been relatively stable since then, although some smaller outbursts like the Charlemagne event I mentioned, there was a Carrington event in 1859, which fried the telegraph lines of the time, but you know, Civilization was not very electrified in 1859, so it didn't really cause that much damage. Uh, an event similar to the Carrington event of the same magnitude as the Carrington event today, which was very, very minor astrophysically, would bring down modern civilization. So all the evidence in my assessment is that we've got to look at the sun. We've got to look at the sun and take it very seriously 
And yes, it is solar events, not a comet uh, that brought down the earlier cycle of civilization. And I do want to stress once again, the end of the last ice age, the end of that earlier cycle of civilization was 9700 BCE, not 10,900 BCE, which is when the comet people speculate there was a comet. And I think it was another solar out. I think it was a solar event at 10,900 BCE as well, based on the data. Uh, one last piece of data I'll mention is that uh, Katie, my wife, Catherine Ulysses, first brought to my attention, made me realize she uh, she saw this, that the Rongo Rongo script of Easter Island seems to be a record of what was seen in the sky at the end of the last ice age. Now, of course, that script and the records are copies of copies of copies of copies of copies, but they are effectively plasma petroglyphs, but on a small scale, or we should say a record of what you would see in the sky, just as Dr. Perot of Los Alamos has recorded in um, the field with uh, petroglyphs engravings on rocks. This was actually um, first discovered by uh, Katie, and she brought it to my attention. I write about it where we uh, cover it in Forgotten Civilization. The first edition, it's since been confirmed since the first edition by other plasma physicists, for instance, C.J. Ransom, uh, another Ph.D. plasma physicist, also has confirmed that in his assessment, this, this, this um, uh, analysis is appropriate. Dr. Perot's team confirmed to us that, yes, he they had realized that these were plasma configurations recorded in antiquity, that is the Rongo Rongo script of Easter Island, but they had not published it. So we did not know about their discovery when Katie found it independently, came to the same conclusion independently, but they confirmed that we were uh, absolutely correct in their assessment. And I come back to the point that this is the type of data that supports a solar outburst, but does not support the comet theory. So a lot of um, different types of information dovetailing together, and I could go on about more, uh, but perhaps that's enough for the moment. Beautiful. I think I'm also aware of uh, Katie's work with the Rongo Rongo script, and I would definitely want to come back to Easter Island. Now, you also mentioned within this timeline, uh, we're talking about, uh, I think, 9,700. This was a sudden event, and it could have happened really quickly. Now, uh, Gobekli Tepe is an interesting place because uh, Dr. Klaus Schmidt, who was the chief uh, uh, excavator at, at Gobekli Tepe, did mention, or in his works and writings, he did bring to our notice that everything at Gobekli Tepe seemed to be buried in a hurried manner. The whole, they were either trying to bury it, there was an instance where a pillar was actually, they, they actually tried to, rebuild the pillar and so there seemed to be some hurry or some chaos in what was happening at that time and that kind of to me when I when I hear that and when I hear what you're saying it ties in quite easily with what you've been telling us so far 
Oh, I absolutely agree with you. And yes, uh, Dr. Schmidt made it very clear in his assessment. Unfortunately, he passed away some years ago. Um, very unfortunate. He shouldn't have, you know, passed away so early, but I don't know the details. Uh, but he made it very clear that, yes, Gebekli Tepe was intentionally buried. But even more importantly, it was not only intentionally buried, but as you pointed out, and I talk about this in Forgotten Civilization, and Klaus Schmidt spoke about it and wrote about it in his publications before he passed away. Some of the pillars were knocked over. Some of them were broken. They were very, very um, quickly, or I should, you know, I hate to say crudely, but you could see they were in a hurry to re-erect the pillars, to get them back into position, and then to bury the entire structure. So you have, in my assessment, direct evidence of the catastrophes that were happening at the end of the last ice age, would have, which would have included major earthquake activity, major flooding from all the water that was put into the atmosphere, put into the atmosphere, all the water in the atmosphere at the time. Imagine solar outbursts. Imagine to be met, uh, not even metaphorical, but to be uh, to uh, give a visual picture of fire or lightning type of uh, uh, plasma discharges hitting ice, hitting water, evaporating huge amounts of water. The atmosphere can only hold so much water, so it comes down as precipitation. We have evidence of flash floods at the time. This probably ties in with some of the original weathering and erosion on the Sphinx. It ties in with uh, things we see at Gebekli Tepe. We know that this was a time of great earthquake activity that was has been established geologically long before I was talking about solar outbursts. And we now have evidence, which I discussed in Forgotten Civilization, that in fact earthquake activity is associated with solar activity. Uh, a lot of people think that's sort of a crazy concept on the face of it. But what seems to be happening is that stresses build up in the Earth. Solar activity includes electrical and magnetic charges, and the Earth itself is heavily influenced by the magnetosphere and by electrical charges, including underground. So in some cases, what you have is stresses that have been built up, but under the right activities initiated by the sun, those stresses get released. The classic example I often use is the concept of avalanches, say an avalanche of snow where it's just about to occur and someone's literally clapping their hands can cause a huge avalanche to be set off. So we now have all kinds of evidence that there was, uh, it was really tumultuous at 9700 BC. And getting back to Gebekli Tepe, this would include pillars being knocked over, then being crudely re-erected in a very hasty fashion. They built uh, crude walls between the pillars to sort of hold them up and reposition them. They then covered the entire structure the entire site over intentionally. And as a stratigrapher, as a geologist, I've analyzed 
the uh, strata there. And it's quite evident to me that this was intentional burial. I mentioned that because some people, since Klaus Schmidt passed away, some archaeologists have started to suggest that, well, maybe it wasn't really intentionally buried. Maybe it was just silt and sand that blew in after the site was abandoned. No. The physical evidence shows it was intentionally buried, and other sites of the same time period and similar to Gebekli Tepe in just the last couple of years have been excavated by Turkish archaeologists who have come to the same conclusion that those sites also were intentionally buried. So why would they intentionally bury these sites in such a hasty fashion? Why did they try to put the pillars into position just before they buried them? I think it has to do with the catastrophes that were occurring at the time. And I suspect that they were covering them over, trying to protect them, uh, maybe with the intention that when things calmed down, they would come back and uh, dig them out and restore them. Maybe they were thinking in terms at least future generations could find them and restore them, so sort of like a time capsule. But either way, they were not simply abandoned. These they were not simply abandoned. These were important sites to them, and they were trying to do what they could to protect them. And when you're talking a solar event like this, solar outburst, the best way to protect a site would be to cover it over, to bury it in rock and debris. The way to escape from it personally would be to go underground into shelters. And we see that at the end of the last ice age. Uh, there have been archaeologists who have remarked and puzzled over why were people going underground? Why were they carving into literally um, solid bedrock at the end of the last ice age, narrow passages and chambers? Well, that would be one way to protect yourself from radiation levels at the surface of the earth. And sometimes people say, well, how did they know it was coming? And my response is that I've talked about a major solar event at 9700 BC, but the people at 9700 BC, BC, the people at 9700 BC may have still had a collective memory of what happened 1200 years earlier at the beginning of the Younger Dryas. So that's one point. The second point I would make is that like earthquakes, I'm a geologist, before you have a major earthquake, you, have, you often have foreshocks. So you have smaller earthquakes that sort of alert you to a big one coming. So they may have had some suggestion that something was coming and even may have begun to prepare after, after the major solar outburst at 9700 BC. We have evidence that there would have been sort of solar aftershocks, um, smaller events, for um, maybe some hundreds or a thousand years before the sun really calmed down for thousands of years. Uh, you know, again, the period of Siddha, the solar-induced dark age. So a lot of things happening there. We're still putting together all the pieces, but I do feel confident now that we have the broad framework and timeline of what was happening there. And Gebekli Tepe is absolutely a 
critical site and provides a lot of evidence to support what I'm talking about. Right, yes, Gobekli Tepe is, it's just super interesting. And as you were mentioning about whatever was happening there or during that time, if we had to just step back and ask ourselves, is there anything that would have been passed down to us from that time? So we do have obvious structures. We have these huge megalithic structures that tell us of possibilities or impossibilities of something being built during that time with what we assume to have been the technology. But that's one part of the materialistic evidence. The second end could be, do we have anything where uh, uh, stories from the past come to an And I think there we come to mythologies. And I think even, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Michel uh, Michael Vissel in his book, The Origin of World Mythology, spoke about it. But what I wanted to ask you, Robert, is currently we have approximately 192 flood myth stories all over the world. Every culture has it, every religion has it in its own way, but it's still a flood myth. Uh, very similar. Now, when we talk about mythology, it could have been, and it, it definitely is, stories that are being passed down. So because of that particular event where you had solar flares, it would have caused floods. It would have caused, you mentioned about warming of, of the ice sheets or rising of the uh, sea levels. Is this not a very strong uh, indicator that something did happen and that's the reason it's so common in all the stories that we hear? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think that the um, flood events that are related in legends, mythologies, traditions around the world, I have no doubt that uh, many, I don't, I, you know, all of them probably originate or have some connection with what was happening at the end of the last ice age. Because at the end of the last ice age, you had not only rising sea levels and rising sea levels around the world on the order of 100, 120 meters, so incredible uh, rises in sea levels, but you get flood mythologies even away from coasts. You get flood mythologies well inland and Many of those flood mythologies, I am convinced, again, tie in with the end of the last ice age. But why would they have them inland? Because they would have flash floods. They would have incredible amounts of precipitation, incredible amounts of rain. You would have situations, especially in uh, many regions of the world, where and we see this to this day. I mean, we've, we've seen in modern times the results of uh, major precipitation. And the major precipitation we see in modern times would have been essentially trivial compared to what we had at the end of the last ice age. So as I was saying, at the end of the last ice age, with major solar outbursts, with these major solar flares, with the plasma strikes, the electrically charged particles being thrown off by the sun and hitting Earth, you would melt the glaciers. You would uh, hit large bodies of water, including the oceans, of course, since the Earth is mostly water. It's a water world. And you would put vast amounts of moisture into the atmosphere. It can only hold so much. You would have had incredible 
incredible torrential rains and rains and rains and precipitation for extended periods of time. Uh, you cannot, even in um, uh, the uh, best places for water seeping into the ground, when you have that much water that quickly, it's going to cause flooding. It's going to cause major flooding. And so you see this around the world, inland and along coasts, you would have had these phenomena plus the rising sea levels. So yes, I expect, I would expect, I would have predicted that there would be major flood stories around the world. And that's exactly uh, what we see. So I have no doubt that they go back to the end of the last ice age. And yes, some of them were probably reinforced by later flooding and later events. But I think the the vast majority, at least, go back to that remote period. And we we have appreciation, I think, a renewed appreciation in the last decade or two that many legends, many stories, many mythologies have a real basis in science, have a real basis in history, and oral traditions, and many of these are are oral traditions, even if they were finally recorded a thousand or two thousand years ago, many oral traditions can maintain their veracity, can maintain their factual content for not just a few generations, but literally for thousands and thousands of years. It's been demonstrated, for instance, that um, Aboriginal traditions in Australia talking about, for instance, now non-existent islands off the coast, that they have a real basis in fact, and that geologists have been able to go out and follow follow these traditions, find islands that were submerged, for instance, and find um, fauna and flora on these islands that are recorded in the, in the traditions. And for so long, uh, people just assumed that it was all mythology in the sense of not having any real basis. But now we know there is a real basis for many of these traditions. True. And coming back to what we touched on at the very beginning where we said we would want to get back, and I would definitely want to get back to that. I want to get back to the Sphinx, and that is what uh, you are really well known for and all of us know you for. Now, Edgar Casey, uh, the mystic Edgar Casey, had spoken about a hall of records uh, somewhere at the left paw or below the left paw of the Sphinx. And I would be very interested because on, on what you think about this, because this has uh, been out in the news. People have been speaking about it. Have we verified to start with whether there is any cavity below the left paw of the Sphinx? So what is your take on this? Well, yeah, my um, take on it is pretty, very simple and straightforward. When Thomas DeBecky and I, in the early 1990s, did low-energy seismic work around the Sphinx, what I was looking for initially was subsurface weathering features, that is, mineralogical changes in the rock once the bedrock uh, surface was exposed around the Sphinx. That's what we were looking for. That's what I wanted. And we found a major cavity, uh, artificial chamber under the left paw of the Sphinx. So we found that. 
So uh, you're talking to one of the discoverers of that, and I have no doubt that it's there, despite some people trying to claim that it may not be there. I, at the time, did not know that Edgar Cayce had made that prediction. So I want to be clear on that. Edgar Cayce, I had heard the name in the early 1990s. So I yeah, I knew of the concept of the psychic of Edgar Casey. He had already passed away. I forget what year he passed away, but it was before I was born. Uh, and so I knew who he was, but I did not know he had predicted a hall of records under the Sphinx. So it was a surprise to me initially when I found that out. And I actually found that out when one of his sons, who was still alive at the time, called me in my office at Boston University and said that I had confirmed one of the predictions of his father about the Hall of Records of the Atlanteans being at the Giza Plateau under the Sphinx, under the paw of the Sphinx, etc., etc. I must say that I was not particularly happy at the time to find... Um, let me back up. I was not particularly... I was not particularly happy at the time to hear that I had confirmed the work or apparently confirmed the work of a psychic, uh, even if it was Edgar Casey, because I already had enough problems with my, with my academic colleagues. My academic colleagues were already gave, giving me lots of grief about redating the Sphinx and pushing the origins of it to an earlier period. The last thing I needed was for um, them to accuse me of going around looking for halls of records of Atlanteans that had predict that had been predicted by a psychic. So it wasn't particularly pleasant news to me to hear that the chamber we found had been predicted by Edgar Casey and. People can take it or leave it, whether they think that was a real prediction or just coincidence or not. But there's no doubt that the chamber's there. It's under the left paw. Now, I have uh, spoken to the Association for Research and Enlightenment, also known as the Edgar Casey Foundation in Virginia Beach, Virginia, a number of times since that discovery. They're wonderful people. I have great respect for everyone there. They have shown me the original archives from Edgar Casey and uh, the transcription of his prediction of the cavity under the Sphinx. When you read some of the transcriptions, they talk about the cavity being on the right side. It's under the left paw, but what I believe is the case is that he was talking about the right side when you face the Sphinx. So if you face the Sphinx, the left paw is on your right. So I think he's talking about the same paw, which only corroborates that he was pretty accurate in his prediction, and one can make what they want of that. The other thing I'll mention is that there's now textual evidence that has been developed, and some of this uh, goes to another colleague, uh, Manu Safesadeh, Dr. Safesadeh, who I've worked with, and we published papers on this, that the early dynastic Egyptians, going back as far as maybe 3000, 3100 BCE, considered the Sphinx 
what we call the Sphinx, was originally a lioness, a female lion, known as Methit or Mehit, the female lion who was a guardian of a chamber underneath her. And that chamber was some kind of chamber that held records, or it was a royal library or an archive. So this all ties together, arguably, with um, Edgar Casey's prediction that there's a hall of records under the Sphinx. So, you know, make what you want of it, but I have to be objective and realistic. He predicted it. We found it. The ancient Egyptians themselves talked about an archive under what we now refer to as the Sphinx. All the pieces seem to fit together. It's at least very interesting, in my opinion. Super interesting. And the Sphinx, yes, it continues to be such an amazing marker uh, for that time. And what about uh, the pyramids, Robert? What do you think are the functional utility of the pyramid? The pyramids are, uh, yeah, that's, that's a whole other subject to talk about. There's a lot of controversy about the pyramids. People argue about whether they're dynastic or pre-dynastic or even earlier. I think that the pyramids we see today, at least the superstructures, are dynastic. But, and this is an important but, I think the sites of the pyramids at Giza, the three major pyramids, the Great Pyramid, the Second Pyramid, and the Third Pyramid, which are attributed to the pharaohs Khufu, Khafre, and Mankara, respectively, and date to you know either side about 2500 BC, give or take a century, you know, because they were built in succession. They may have connections to those pharaohs. And I've been in all of them. I've been up in the relief chambers, so-called relief chambers, where there's a cartouche of Khufu, the repute cartouche of Khufu. I am convinced it's an ancient cartouche. It's not a modern forgery, as some people suggest. On the other hand, I'm not convinced that the Great Pyramid is built all in one piece. I think that it was built in different stages and where you find that cartouche is one of the latest stages so it may be a dynastic addition to an earlier structure bottom line is that i think that the sites of the three pyramids go back to that much earlier period there is evidence and katie and i were looking at this very carefully when we're when we were in egypt uh, just earlier this summer, there's more and more evidence we're finding that the Giza Plateau itself was hit by a major plasma strike at the end of the last ice age. So we're ta- we were talking about the solar events, the uh, solar outbursts that occurred. In some cases, you would get what would appear if you watched it or saw it when it occurred, it would appear to be huge lightning strikes hitting the earth. This would um, 
vitrify the rock in places. That is, it would melt the rock. It would penetrate into the rock. It would give um, uh, the rock a glassy texture when the rock sort of flash melted and then congealed very quickly again, sort of looks like scoria or um, sort of burnt, crumbled rock with... Um, uh, I'm trying to describe with little bubbles in it, that type of thing. Doesn't look like pretty glass generally. Although in some cases you can get some very nice looking natural glass out of it. Uh, we see evidence of this right on the Giza Plateau. And we have evidence of the Sphinx or the vicinity of the Sphinx having been hit by plasma, having uh, vitrification. We have what's known as the inventory stella, which goes back to the late period, so 5600 BC, E, maybe something like that, but purports, and I think it's uh, uh, genuine in this case, purports to be a copy of a manuscript, a copy of an inscription that goes back thousands of years earlier, and it talks about the Sphinx itself being hit by a thunderbolt that is hit by lightning and the Pharaoh Khufu in dynastic times going to see the Sphinx and having um, uh, repairs done on the Sphinx and going to see the quote thunderbolt. Well, how can you go see a thunderbolt? What I think he was looking at was um, vitrified rock that they realized had been caused by a solar outburst. And if you think about the sun, the sun essentially represented God. The sun is God uh, for so many religions, or is a manifestation, should I say, of the one true God. Uh, and the Egyptians felt that way. They talked about the sun and the solar deity and really representing every uh, thing. So here we have a site where God literally came to the earth with a solar outburst, touched the earth here, touched the Giza Plateau, and made it a sacred site. Uh, this is my informed speculation at the time based on the evidence. And when we look at the positioning of the three major pyramids, could those be places where solar outbursts literally hit in sequence on the plateau. As we know, this is what happened based on plasma physics. This is what the type of thing that can happen when you have a uh, plasma strike. It'll sort of hit one place, then jump and, you know, have a sequence of spots where it hits. This can be demonstrated in the laboratory. It's been demonstrated where we have a good record of what appear to be plasma strikes on the moon, on the lunar surface at the end of the last ice age. The moon is very important because it preserves more surface features from a solar outburst than does the Earth because the moon doesn't have the same atmosphere. It doesn't have a, a volatile atmosphere like the Earth does, which causes so much weathering and erosion. So getting back to the pyramids, they may well mark um, specific plasma strikes. And we've started looking, Katie and I have started looking, for instance, at dendritic structures among the uh, plasma on the plateau that seem to point back to 
the basis of the pyramids. So it all gets, I think, very interesting. But I can see a direct connection to the sun and the pyramids and the plateau. And I'll point out one other thing. There is evidence in my assessment that all three pyramids were being rebuilt or refurbished during dynastic times. So the second pyramid, many people don't realize this, even if they've been to the Giza Plateau, they don't realize or they don't pay attention to the fact that the second pyramid has a ring of granite around the base, has a ring of red granite. And that is, in my assessment, incredibly significant because the dynastic Egyptians often, based on the evidence I've put together, marked refurbishments, reconstructions, reappropriating an earlier structure by using granite. And to put a ring of granite around the base of the second pyramid says to me that they were marking and refurbishing an older structure. So the superstructure we see now may be dynastic, but I think they were telling us that, no, this is an older site. This is an older spot. The Menkara pyramid, the little third pyramid, has casing of granite. I think they were saying exactly the same thing. In the Great Pyramid, you have granite lining the king's chamber. This may be significant and indicate the same thing again. At Dashur, not Sakar, I'm um, not 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 Giza, but at Dashur, um, which is outside of Cairo too, another spot where you have pyramids. You have what's known as the Bent Pyramid and the Red or North Pyramid. They go back to slightly before the pyramids at Giza, based on the conventional uh, Egyptological dating. And what you have with the pyramid at Dashur, known as the North Pyramid or Red Pyramid, when you go in there, and I show people this when I take them to Egypt, as I did just earlier this summer, within there, you have what appears to be a much older structure, a much older structure that seems to be built around and over and covering the, um, I'm sorry, a much older structure within the pyramid and the pyramid itself seems to be built over and around and covering and protecting this earlier structure. So in many cases, we have things from dynastic Egypt, which I believe are covering over earlier structures. They were reappropriating earlier structures. And there's no better example of that, perhaps, than the Great Sphinx itself, where you had a statue that goes back to a much earlier period, was being reused by the dynastic Egyptians, even to the point that they recarved the head. This is also interesting, Robert, and I'm sure that all our listeners are going to force me, and I hope you accept it, to get you back because we definitely need to have one episode dedicated just uh, for the pyramids, uh, for the Sphinx. I just hope if we do 
send you that request you would want to come back and talk to talk to us about it because like you said there's just so much here i have so many questions at the moment that i do not want to open up because i think we've taken a lot of your time already and i just hope you can come back and speak to us oh yeah we can we can try to do some more another time there's there's lots to discuss i didn't even start to talk about uh sites other than egypt and Gobekli Tepe in Turkey a little bit. Uh, there's East Iran. Well, I mentioned East Iran briefly. There's more and more evidence that not only was Gobekli Tepe intentionally buried at the end of the last ice age, but other sites were intentionally buried at the end of the last ice age, including in Egypt. Uh, something that we've been looking at, Katie and I, is a number of sites in Egypt seem to have been intentionally buried. They were using mud brick because they didn't have stone to bury them. So a lot happening um, when it all occurs. We're working right now on a documentary. When I say we, I am part of an organization, a not-for-profit organization known as the Organization for the Research of Ancient Cultures, or by the acronym ORCOOL. And uh, Katie and I volunteer our time and efforts to that. And among other things, ORCOOL, Organization for the Research of Ancient Cultures, we are working on a documentary with the uh, title Civilization Before Civilization, talking about these very subjects that we've been discussing during our conversation. But of course, uh, this is a film, so we've got footage from Egypt, we've got footage from Turkey, etc. And we're working on that documentary now. So uh, I'm hoping that we can go into post-production soon, get the final footage that we need and then start putting it all together. So ideal time might be to talk after the documentary comes out. And in the meantime, if people would like to see a trailer, they can go to my website and there's a link to Oracle. Of course, if they'd like to donate uh, to the not-for-profit, uh, Oracle can you know, we're raising money for the documentary, for the educational documentary. But I would encourage people to go to my website, which is www.robertshock.com. So www.robertshock.com. My name is spelled S-C-H-O-C-H. So it's robertshock, all run together, .com. And from there, there's a link to uh, the Oracle page. You can see a trailer for the documentary that we put together. We were filming more uh, recently for it. We've been doing interviews with various scientists and uh, prominent academics who will be included in it. We may put together another trailer before the actual documentary comes out. Also, if people want to go to directly to the Oracle website, let me give that also. That's Oracle Online. So it's spelled O-R-A-C-U-L-O-N-L-I-N-E dot org. Oracle Online, all this one word, dot org. So I'm very excited about that. And of course, I'm working on another book at the moment. It seems like I'm always working on a book. So if people would like more information, go to my website, uh, go to the Oracle website, and um, there's always more to discuss and to discover. 
and to read. Uh, I would definitely encourage everyone to, uh, I hope, read Forgotten Civilization, the new revised and expanded edition. I'm not trying to plug books. I'm trying to give information. That's amazing, Robert. And I think the documentary that you spoke about, that itself is very exciting. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to be going and checking that trailer and also waiting for that documentary to come out. But not really wanting to plug your book, I have to tell you, Robert, The Forgotten Civilization has been a book that I read in 2012. I've read it again uh, about three months ago. And for all our listeners here, I do know that 75% to 80% of our listeners are college and university students. I think it's a must that you get this book, pick it up, sit in a corner and just take your time, read. And it's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful book, just the way it's written. It's it's very easy to understand. So it was and still remains one of my favorite books. And Robert, I was really happy that you came out with the latest version. But I think you've been inspiring us for so many years. And before we let you go, I want to have, I'm trying to get a commitment that we can speak again and get into a lot of more detail. I think we missed out Easter Island as well. But I, I didn't think that I would want to get into it uh, just for the sake of it and then, you know, spend one or two minutes on it. I think we need to probably spend uh, another episode on that. But as I said, you've been inspiring us for so long. I still remember the documentary in 1993, The Mystery of the Sphinx. That was, I think it was presented by Charlton Heston, where you and Anthony West had appeared. And uh, since then, you've been speaking about this. So uh, for people who are listening to you for the first time, Robert, uh, students, people who are just getting to know the mysteries that you've been uncovering. And as they move forward in their careers, we spoke about Gobekli Tepe. That's going to be something that maybe a young listener is going to pick up and, and move forward as far as their careers are concerned. What message would you like to pass to all of us, Robert, as we look at the, the future moving forward? Oh, I think we just have to keep following the evidence, keep looking at um, the evidence. And what I found in my academic career, in my own life, is that it's really important to follow the evidence, to not let your worldview or your paradigm or your uh, sort of, um, how should I say it, you know, your, your pet theories get in the way. So many people, they want to believe what they want to believe, but I think we really need to look at the evidence and base it on that. And as I mentioned earlier, I find it incredibly important to learn from the past. And it sounds like a cliche, maybe it is, but I believe it's true. We need to really learn from the past as we uh, go forward. Things happened in the past to our ancestors, and it's very cyclical in many ways. Many uh, modern people have this, I'll call it linear view of history and the world, but I as a geologist, I, someone who now, as a geologist and I, let me start over. As a geologist and someone who studies ancient civilizations, ancient history, I do see what I'll call similar patterns occurring over and over and over again. And I think it's important that we acknowledge those patterns as we move forward. 
getting back to the ancient civilizations, there was an earlier cycle of civilization. We are now in another cycle of civilization, and we should learn what happened to that earlier cycle, especially relative to the sun, as we move forward, because this is not trivial. The sun is up there. The sun is getting very active now, and we should prepare. I don't want to sound like an alarmist, but the reality is that uh, we could experience another major solar outburst, and we probably will. I can say we will uh, at some point in the future. I say that with all confidence as a geologist. And when we do, because we have such a fundamental dependence on electricity and electronics and satellites and all the modern technology associated with uh, the electrical grid, you know, it, it could it could be it will be very very serious if we don't prepare ahead of time and we don't think about these things. So it's more than just having fun learning about ancient civilizations. I think this type of knowledge has real practical value for us in the modern world. And thank you so much, Robert, for spending your time. I know we kept you waiting. I miscalculated the time. I'm. I seriously no, have to get my fine. bearings right, but thank you. And I would, it was really nice uh, speaking to Katie as well for a very short while. But thank you so much. And I just hope that we can do this again. And the next time oh, we do absolutely. it, because this was very introductory, I think we can specifically now tune on or, or just get into the areas that you were talking about. There's so much to talk. No, there's plenty to talk about. We will do it again sometime. We'll find a nice time to do it again. Thank you so much from all of us here. Okay, well, thank you. इस हब हॉपर ओरिजिनल को सुनने के लिए आपका शुक्रिया। अगर आप भी अपना पॉडकास्ट लॉन्च करना चाहते हैं, तो हब हॉपर स्टूडियो वेबसाइट पे रजिस्टर करें और एक मिनट के अंदर अंदर अपना खुद का पॉडकास्ट लॉन्च करें। यही नहीं स्टूडियो देता है आपको पूरी आजादी कहीं भी कभी भी अपना पॉडकास्ट लॉन्च करने की सिर्फ तीन आसान स्टेप्स में तो साथ में अपना पॉडकास्ट शुरू करने के लिए तैयार जस्ट हॉप ऑन हब हॉपर सिंपली कंटेंट